This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9. It's now 36 minutes past nine on the 11th of January, and it's time for the SM show. There, there you go. The show where we rant about what's working, what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Shred Kutin with me, Julian Ng. And our guest this week is Monim Salam, President and Fund Manager of Saturna Sundaram Berhat, uh, Saturna Capital's uh, wholly owned Malaysian subsidiary. So the topic that we're going to talk about today is something that we are actually very familiar with, Sharia investing. Uh, Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur has been a Sharia center for a long time now, uh, you know, pushed by the government as a policy to be uh, a force here in Sharia investing. But today we really want to dig down into uh, the principles of Sharia investing. And Munim, you are, of course, uh, very qualified uh, to talk about this. Could you just give us a little bit about your background and how that shaped your views about Sharia investing? Sure. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me on the show again. Um, actually, I go back a, quite a long ways, about 20, 20 years or so in the Islamic investing uh, industry. Um, I had just graduated from college. I was do doing an internship. And uh, somebody said, hey, you know, we're starting this new firm and we're doing this thing called Islamic investing. Why don't you come over and, and, and you know, we can learn together from it. Um, so I ended up doing that. And along the way, I've learned quite a bit, uh, you know, sat with scholars and, 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 and come up with the kind of, not come up with the rules, but help them explain the rules and those type of things. So uh, it's been a great ride. And the industry along that way in the past 20 years has grown quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think everybody's very proud of whatever Malaysia has been able to do. Is this a question here of identity? I mean, is this, uh, you know, are Sharia-compliant products really about Muslims wanting to engage with the financial system? Or is it really a fairly agnostic at the, at, you know, at, the, at the base of it that anybody, Muslim or non-Muslim, can really look to Sharia-compliant financial tools and platforms as something for them? So, I mean, I think it's both. So uh, from a Muslim perspective, it is something that's required in the religion, or I should say forbidden in the religion to do certain things in conventional finance. So for them, it would be something more of a, okay, it's a baseline story. You have to be able to, to know about it and do it. On the other side of it, as, as the industry has developed, uh, what we've learned is that there's, there's a lot of qualities in, in, uh, in Islamic finance that actually can cross over. Um, and because what I like to say is money is agnostic, it basically just chases the return. Um, there's a case to be made that actually Islamic finance or Islamic investing um, is something that even conventional or agnostic money can go towards. So this is very interesting because one of uh, the things that is forbidden in Islamic investing would be investing in banks. Uh, and Islam doesn't believe in the idea of charging interest rates. Correct. Uh, but when you remove the banks, uh, then it can be argued that you are removing a chunk of the economy given that uh, the financial sector is so big right now as a part of the economy. Would you say that uh, the returns that are coming from uh, Sharia investing is comparable to uh, conventional returns without the banks? So, I mean, I think for, uh, for, uh, for active managers and even for passive ones, um, you want to look at the long term. And what you find is if you go back 15, 20 years of history, basically a conventional index versus an Islamic index, what you're going to find is that there's actually no statistical difference between the return profiles. What typically ends up happening is in a short, shorter period of time, if banks do well, 
the Islamic indices were underperform, and when the banks do poorly, the Islamic indices were outperform. In the end of it, there's really no, not, not much difference at all. So what that tells you is that you can still be able to hold to your beliefs and still be able to make investments that will keep up with the market. Then from there, it's up to you whether you want to be an active person, you know, buy and sell, or you want to be passive and just ride the index to whatever uh, it's going to be. There was, this, uh, at one point in time, um, what we like to call cost of being Muslim. Uh, what that means is that, you know, that I have to accept a lesser return or I have to pay a little bit extra to get Islamic financing. I don't think that that, that, that myth um, has been abolished probably about five, ten years ago, but it's still, it's like an urban legend. People still talk about it and, and do it, but I, I, statistically it doesn't show it. So in the wider context of what is a proxy to the economy, um, can we actually say that the view that banks are uh, the, the true proxy of the economy because they lend to so many sectors of the economy uh, and they're so correlated to the economy, uh, you're saying that that view doesn't hold anymore, right? And, and also as a follow-up question, what then becomes representative of the economy? So Malaysia and some of the other emerging markets are a little bit different in the fact that there are some, very few, but there are some uh, um, Islamic banks that are publicly traded. So you can, could get some of that. Um, what, I would, what I would say more is that um, they are correlated on the, on the upside. On the downside, what I would say is, is that most of the banks underperform when there's tight regulations and they're being fined for certain things um, that they were doing, their practices and those things. So if you look at between five and ten years out now, I would argue that probably we're in an environment where you don't want to own any banks. There's tighter regulations. They've been caught doing some things that were illegal. You know, there's a public perception that's bad. You know, if any other industry, I would tell you those were the signs. You'd say, I'd stay away from them with a ten-foot pole. Yeah. Why is it that something you want to be able to do now, just because of this mentality that you have to own a bank, I don't think it's the case. Would you also say that there are other growth uh, type sectors or themes that can replace banks? For example, uh, the tech sector uh, is something that's very good to give you an exposure to growth. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I wouldn't say it's a replacement, um, but I, I, I do think it's an alternative. Um, so I think that that you know, basically those. Um, um, those industries or sectors that are very tied to the economic um, uh, environment, those are the ones you want to look at. Yeah. So consumer discretionary, um, you know, on the tail end of it, consumer, um, uh, you know, staples, those type of things. I just have one more question before we move on uh, to this idea about uh, banks being problematic for the world economy. Um, help us understand um, the interest rates a little bit from the context of Sharia. Is it okay that uh, Sharia banking or sukuks still have an interest rate or yield? Because when you buy into uh, sukuk, you would ask what the effective yields of that sukuk bond will be, and yet interest rates are not allowed in Islamic banking. Sure. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is you don't want to mistake yield for interest rate. And the reason is because I can go into business with you and ask you how much money am I going to make in the end of it? That, ineffectively, is a yield, um, whereas interest rates directly try to a loan that I'm, that I'm giving. Uh, in the sukuk uh, part, that's not actually a loan. It's, it's, it's a business transaction you're making. It's either you're buying uh, a leased assets or you're doing something that's giving you a rate of return. Um, so it's a little bit different. I would, I would consider sukuk payments more like dividend payments. They're a little bit more guaranteed than a, than a common stock rather than uh, a bond payment, which is something that's, that's guaranteed. And if you don't get it, then there's recourse for you to be able to go after other assets 
on 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 the company's balance sheet. So there, it is a little bit different now. There they are proxies to each other. So for example, if I go out and say, you know, um, a, a company X Y Z hit a bond issue at four percent, and then I say company ABC did one, how much should I be getting? They will kind of mirror that that four percent if they're equal credit and those type of things. But that's just the nature of how much money is in conventional versus how much money is in Islamic. Well, one question, do we have time to, to ask one question? Very basic because we're getting very philosophical. What's wrong with interest rates? Ah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, and I, if we don't have that much time to explain, so I'll be trying as brief as possible. Fundamentally in Islam, uh, uh, Isla- Islamically, a loan uh, is not a business transaction. It's a charity. Okay? So if you're going to give a loan, then the reward comes from God. It doesn't come from mankind. So if you're going to do a business transaction, say, well, I'm going to give a loan. What if inflation is going to erode my money, those type of things? Don't give a loan. Do other types of transactions that will give you money in return. So fundamentally, what an interest rate is, is a rent on the money that you're lending somebody. And that's fundamentally not allowed. Okay, you're listening to Monim Salam, president of the and fund manager of Satuna Sindriam Bahat. Uh, with me, uh, Julian Ng, and Shur- I'm Sharad Kutin. We'll be back with more on the SNM show after this, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, we're back with the SNM show and our guest, uh, Monim Salam, president and fund manager of Satuna Sindriam Bahat. We're talking about uh, Sharia compliant investing. Uh, you're a, you know, a real uh, cheerleader for Sharia uh, principles. Do you you were once quoted saying that the world could have avoided fi- uh, the world can avoid a financial collapse if Sharia com- uh, principles are adhered to. Did you make that statement? Uh, I did actually, and I do believe it. Um, there's actually, if you think about it, two uh, uh, components of that. One is something that n- nobody can avoid. The other one is you can't avoid. The one that's kind of get the the one that everybody cannot avoid out of the way because that's an easy one, and that is the aspect of greed. Greed is a human nature. It's something that you have to suppress to be able to do that. And I think whether you're Islamic finance or conventional finance, then that, that greed is going to be there. So you can't avoid that. So if, if you're saying that greed led to a financial crisis, I'm going to say everybody contributed equally. However, there's one more thing that comes with the greed, and that is the over or excessive use of leverage um, and n- not having a fundamental uh, um, asset behind any kind of loan or derivative or those type of things that you're making. When you begin to do that, then the leverage ratio, 20 times, 30 times, 40 times, uh, uh, you know, you can leverage up to, uh, it really causes unnecessary volatility in the market. But at the same time, in times of turmoil, it can literally cause a financial collapse. And that's, I think, what happened um, uh, in 2008 when that overuse of leverage was just willy-nilly everywhere. But you're not, uh, you're not recommending the total uh, elimination of uh, derivatives, are you? Because there are some derivatives which are useful, especially if they're used for hedging. Sure, sure. I mean, then what I would say is that that there will be a difference between a covered and an uncovered hedge. So, for example, if I was a businessman and I had to do business in another country, uh, there might be some legitimate need for me to um, cover my my currency position because of the trade that I'm making. What I'm more talking about is the fact that I have nothing to do with it. I'm a speculator. I come into the market. I can leverage myself four or five times, actually 40, 50 times above however much I have. And if I even lose 1% in value, I basically get wiped out. And if you think of a Lehman Brothers, that's exactly what happened. Do you think the structures that we have now in the financial system, the uh, you know the tools that we have, uh, enable people to treat the financial system as a, a virtual casino that they encourage to you know gamble? To gamble, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not only about it is definitely um, some of the tools. I don't want to um, uh, you know b- um, give a blank check to everything is bad, um, but I do want to say some of the aspects of derivative trading and those type of things. 
things are very, very destructive to an economy. And when we talk in an environment of how does the financial sector get into the real economy, well, you know, having nothing to do with giving loans to people or those type of things, and I'm just a speculator or a gambler, like, like you said, what do I have to do with uh, leveraging myself 40, 40 times over except just to make as much money as I can? And regardless of the consequences, which be, could be the destruction of an economy. So this whole thing is based on the idea of the hatred of over-leverage. But if you take away ideas of uh, leverage and uh, derivatives uh, away, would that slow down world growth? Because we need a certain amount of leverage to have uh, the world growing and chugging along. Yeah, um, you know, leverage is basically you're borrowing from future generations to pay for this one. And so when you have excessive growth, you're only kicking that can down the road. Um, so what I would say is that, you know, that it's, it's perfectly okay to be able to live in an environment. We've done it for the past now seven or eight years, which is slower growth. And I know, again, this, this aspect of faster growth leads to the greed aspect. More people make more money faster in, at the expense of the next generation. And that's unsustainable. Some, some, somewhere down the road, that's going to come to a head. I just want to take another uh, quote from you, I believe, uh, because I, I saw it on a website called Islamic Finance News. And uh, the quote is that for Muslims, it is forbidden to make money from money. Uh, and CDOs made money from making money. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, is supportive of what you're saying as well. But uh, in the context of property and REITs, uh, this is something that is a very, very special category in the sense that they're kind of borderline unsharia, right? Uh, because property is almost a financial asset and uh, they charge rental and they're kind of making money from making money. What, what do you think of that? No, no, I, I, I completely disagree actually on the property side of it because the reason is properties are a real asset. And, and when you look at CDOs or collateralized debt obligations, there's really no asset. It's only the debt as considered as an asset, but there's nothing physical there. It's, it's a loan obligation. So whereas in a property, you can, you can take over the building if nobody pays or you can kick out the, 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 the renter as a landlord and you can get somebody in, there's a physical asset that's there. In the CDOs, there's nothing. In the, uh, in the excess of leverage that people do on financial, on, on paper transactions, there's nothing real behind it. And that's really what Islam discourages or even prohibits. So right. is it okay if a REIT or uh, a landlord who owns many properties leverage up and borrow the property to buy into uh, more property than they can afford? Is that, um, is that Islamic? So technically, I would say yes. The type of transaction that's being done could be possibly no. Majority of the REITs, the real estate investment trusts, that are there um, are probably not going to be accepted because they're taking conventional loans. Now, how would you do, a, an, uh, for example, a sukuk transaction? You would securitize the land, maybe, for example, on the, the property, use the money to buy more properties, and then pay back whatever it is that you, you, had, uh, you had leveraged. You know, this is a fascinating discussion because it sounds like you've got a solution for humanity. Now, if we, but the question is, can you, can you sell it to the rest of the world? And even the selling or marketing of Sharia-compliant uh, financial tools or even the thinking, the philosophy behind it, would it be uh, a strategy to take the word Sharia and Islamic out of the mix and say, well, this is actually just a solution for uh, a much more sensible and stable economic system? I mean, would that be an uh, easier way to sell this? Um, I think uh, uh, it depends on the market that you're going after. I mean, I think for, for, for an average layperson Muslim, this is a debate that happens quite often in our industry. Do we want to label something Sharia or Islamic? Because it might exclude a lot of other people out. Um, I'm more of the opinion that you don't need the label. 
Um, you know, we have a really great product. I, I personally think it's better than everything else. So why having to label it and pigeonhole it into a certain group of people? Um, so no, I, I don't think um, um, we need to have that 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 label of, of of Islamic. I think we can easily just call it. You know, like from Turkey, they call it participation finance. Maybe in other countries, they have some other name for it. I think those are much more uh, um, across the board. Um, better, I think, as, as a tool. Yeah, I think, Sharad, what you're alluding to is also a point of convergence and singularity. And we talked about this last week uh, in SNM as well, uh, when we had Chris Ng talking about uh, the ESG sector, the ethical investing sector. Are you comfortable with uh, Sharia investing being part of the ethical investing, or do you think that it, it should be two separate categories? Because if we, for example, look at uh, palm oil uh, stocks, for instance, that is uh, Sharia approved in Malaysia, but not necessarily environmental and therefore might fall out of the radar for ESG or ethical investors. So I think you have to d kind of distinguish. So ethical investing, I would say, um, is a subsection of the entire um, socially responsible or sustainable and responsible and impactful investing. Um, and there are major differences between the two. Ethical investing only says, you know, these are the things that are forbidden. It really doesn't get beyond that to say these are the things that are encouraged. And what I like to tell Muslims is that historically, if you look at you know, where the industries come, Initially, if you're just looking at the Muslim community, I know we talked about the larger humanity, but just looking in the Muslim community, what we were doing was we were just trying to get out of the hellfire. The things that were forbidden that we were doing anyway because we had to, we had to get rid of those first. Now that we've done that, now we can think about how do we get into heaven, which is doing the better things, the more important things, which are for the betterment of humanity. So those are the distance. So I can buy a palm oil company just purely on a Sharia basis um, because it, maybe it doesn't, it's not uh, doing anything that's outwardly forbidden. However, you know, the, the, the next aspect of that, or Islamic Finance 2.0, might look at it and say, I know it's allowed, but what are you going to do to be able to mitigate the, the, the burning of the forests, or what are your label practices, what are your governance? And in the long run, <clears throat> what we found is that that actually does add value um, to the companies that you're investing in. Heaven for me would be uh, a hacienda in Jandabai. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you would buy a palm oil stock. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. Well, um, if, if the ESG is going to outperform, you might be able to afford that hacienda in Jandabai. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, just uh, we don't have a lot of time left, and this is a truly fascinating discussion. What is in store for the future of uh, Sharia investing? And I'm just specifically referring uh, to what's happening in the oil world. I think a lot of the money is focused in uh, the Middle Eastern Sovereign Wealth Fund and all the petrodollars that were kind of flowing in the past. And today, oil is uh, now at a much lower price and Saudi Arabia is also restructuring. Do you think that this will have an impact on how successful Sharia products would be? Um, I think we're just going to be able to get into new markets. I mean, you know, to be, to be honest with you, petrodollars are the easy way to get into Islamic finance. It's a, a concentrated amount of wealth uh, with a certain amount of people. Um, what the next next phase, I think, for Islamic, as, as, especially as oil prices come down, is looking at how do we get Islamic finance to the to the average retail person um, that that's on the street. That includes Indonesia with 300 million population. That includes Pakistan. Those Muslim countries, even China, even has China, for a example, huge Muslim absolutely. Population. So how do you get to those people? Because so far, Islamic finance is only focused on you know the 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 the, the, the transactions that are only for the wealthy. 
Uh, also, uh, I have a last question for you. Uh, you know, what are the char- what are the barriers? What's stopping Sharia compliant products from going further afield? Do you see some sort of pushback? Is there some hesitance on the part of uh, clients and consumers uh, for these products? So, I mean, I think you have on 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 two different extremes. It's like a, just like a barbell, um, like anything else. So, on the one side, you have certain people like, no matter what happens, I'm going to do Islamic investing. And on the other side of it, you have no matter what happens, I'm never going to do it because it's linked to terrorism and and those type of things. Majority of the people have really more taken a wait and see attitude. You know, let's see over the long run if it really comes out, uh, comes comes to fruition or not, and then we'll make our decision to do that. One thing to keep in mind is it's very very difficult to build trust in any financial in, in, in the financial industry, and so that takes time. So you really have to have patient capital to really get into this industry. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you listening to uh, Monim Salam, President and Fund Manager of Saturna Sundar Bharat. Uh, Julian Ng was with me. I'm Sharad Kutin, and you've been listening to the SNM Show. And of course, uh, we come to the end of uh, the morning run on BFM 89.9, the Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.